Are you hesitating to take the next step in your e-commerce journey? Founder Plus has you covered with proven frameworks tailored to your business needs for fast results, a supportive community of over 30,000 like-minded entrepreneurs and weekly live mentorship sessions. Founder Plus is your key to success. Try Founder Plus today for just $1 for seven days and start building your dream business with confidence. You can visit founder.com forward slash start dollar trial or click the link in the description to claim your trial. Right now is literally the best time to start an e-commerce business and here's why. In 2018, we created something that was a first of its kind, a comprehensive online course to start and launch your e-commerce business from scratch and we called it Start and Scale. Now, five years later, this course has helped 25,000 founders in 65 different countries kickstart their business ideas, including thousands who have achieved six and seven figure results. Founders like Lorianne Trin, who used Start and Scale to create a kids apparel brand that celebrates heritage. Or Samantha Brett, who used Start and Scale to build Naked Sundays into Australia's number one SPF skincare brand. Or April Scott, who used Start and Scale to gain the confidence to launch her luxury sleepwear brand. Although we've updated the program before, this year proved that right now is a defining moment for e-commerce and it's because of AI. With AI, what used to be slow is now fast. What used to be complex is now simple and what used to be expensive is now cheap. Every business is going to look so different in 10 years and if it doesn't look different, it'll likely be out of business. So we went back into the studio because we knew to keep start and scale valuable for your business, we had to update it with the most relevant tools and strategies. So today, we're proud to introduce the brand new Start and Scale 3.0 course. And this course is for you if you don't have an idea yet. You're going to learn the fastest path to creating brand names, product ideas, logos, images, all through the power of AI. Or if you already have an online store, you'll learn how AI can help you automate repetitive tasks, analyze customer data, create all sorts of different content, and even handle customer service and so much more. So whether you're a Start and Scale veteran with a flourishing e-commerce business, or you're hoping to take the first step to 2024, this new course will help you completely transform your e-commerce journey with the power of AI. We're super proud of this incredible program. This is the third iteration. We've spent so much time, hundreds of thousands of dollars. So if you want to know more and want to sign up, which I highly recommend you do, if you want to start a store and you're confused or you're not sure where to start, go to founder.com forward slash build my store. That's founder, F-O-U-N-D-R.com forward slash build my store. I can't wait to see you inside. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. now, the Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Seth Ghost, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Well, welcome guys to another interview for the e-commerce AI Summit. We're here in the studio. We've got the wonderful Trini Woodall. Uh, she happened to be in town and it's way more fun to do this in person 
and uh, we've invited her here in the studio to find out how she's built Trini London. We interviewed her this time last year and this business is being taken the world by storm. It's one of the fastest growing e-commerce businesses in the UK. We're going to find out how the hell she's doing this and a little bit about AI. So Trini, thanks so much for taking the time round two. Good to be back here. So the first question that I ask everyone that comes on, for those who are not familiar with who you are in Trinity mm -hmm. London, how did you get your job, okay? How did you find yourself doing the work you're doing today? I got my job because I started a business and I employed myself. Um, but I started it six years ago yesterday. It launched. Oh. Um, we so had our anniversary. Birthday. Yeah, it's yeah. a birthday. And I had the idea probably about 12 years ago. But I knew that I wanted to get back into DC. I'd done it before when it was not even DC. I just call it online in 99. I think we spoke about that, about challenges, of starting business, what you learn from a failure. Mm. And I think I had gone around the world making over women. And I realized the one thing that challenged women was knowing what makeup to wear. So I want to make it easy for them, portable for them. I want them to be able to buy it online, whatever their age. And I want to actually focus on a target of a 35 plus woman because I felt she was underrepresented in the market. And so that's what we launched. I'm curious to hear from your perspective, besides this incredible like range of products and the brand that you've built, what do you think has really caused this uh, really strong growth? I think it's a mixture of honing in on an audience that feels it hasn't been spoken to yeah. and speaking with a message that resonates because there's a lot of noise out there. There are squillion beauty brands. There's a ton of online beauty brands mm. and there's a ton of legacy beauty brands. So it's about how do you cut through and it's got to be mission led and we are a mission led business. So for me, it's about how can we leave every woman feeling better and more joyful and happier. Yeah. And we do that with products. We do that with community. We do that with content. You know, we're kind of more than just selling you a lipstick. Mm. So. I feel to break through in any industry, your point of difference has to be something that's very emotionally driven. It cannot be product driven. It has to kind of have that whole emotional halo because that's how we most respond to things in life. You know, we need to have that draw. We, it needs to pull on something inside of us that makes us think this could shift me or this will make me feel better or this is going to bring something else into my life. So we do that with everything that we, when we talk about Trinity London. Yeah. And how has it evolved over time? Like what was the suite? That, what did you start with? We started with kind of SKUs. We started with 100 SKUs and yeah. we launched, in fact, no, we had 49 SKUs when we started. And then we quickly added in two things that had quite long ranges. Started with makeup because that's what women would see when I did makeovers on them. And I used to travel around the world doing makeovers. And they have a complicated relationship we all do with body, hair, face. But mm. if you do someone's face and they love it, they then can see everything else. You know, they're, they're sort of think, okay, that's good. And then they'll look at the hair and look at the body. And so I felt this is the element that if we can get that right and make it really easy. You know, there are so many women who just don't want to really do makeup because they think, where do I start? And there's other women who've done it the same way for a long time. And they think, I'm kind of embarrassed to go up to the department store counter and say, help me to rethink how I do it, you know. So we needed to give messages that would let women know that we were there for this kind of woman. Um, mm. And I think that's what we did. Yeah. And so, so over the last, I mean, if compared to 
when we start, I remember when we started the day we started and mm. we did like 6,000 pounds or something. It was just so exciting. You know, mm. we, we were on Shopify and yeah. it was like, you know, the bing, bing, bing. And you're yeah. watching it. Any entrepreneur knows this feeling of mm. the, just that kind of the ping. And I remember we all sat around this little, we had a table like this and mm. there were not so many of us. And it was so exciting because you've, you know, worked on something for a long time, but that day that you actually launch it, people actually putting their face in and buying it is a huge step for anybody who is, you know, doing a business which has a commercial product in it and it isn't a service. So then it just grew and it grew really nicely each year. You know, we've grown over six years, you know, if you're apportionate, we've grown 120% a year. Mm. And I think when you grow, when we, when we grew, I knew that we wanted to have a very good retention. And mm. at the time, I think we spoke about this before, yeah. but at the time it was all about new customer only and not yeah. retention. I mean, what we speak about anyone raising money today, it's about what's your retention. Mm. You know, that is the key thing. Retention, EBITDA, you yeah. know, that triangle, it's got yeah. to be those three things um, of, you know, a number of customers, et cetera. So we had got this very good retention and we had really good cohort data. And I think each year those early cohorts have stayed with us. So in a way you're really building a business on a foundation block, not so much on quicksand and you feel that strength. And it goes back to this old adage of word of mouth and getting somebody who, you know, a, a, somebody who's a Trini London star customer, which is about, uh, I think 65% of our customers, well, 65% of revenue, but actually 20% of our customer is this person who actually comes in and she buys really deeply into the brand. And that is our perfect kind of customer because they're like, I don't have to look any further. I've come here and I feel that's helped us a lot in our growth because then as we develop a new vertical and last mm. year, I think I just launched skincare when I saw you last yep. time. Yep. And now yep. we've been, it's been over a year, but it's now about 35% of our revenue. Oh, wow. Already. And they're more, um, you know, they're more replenishable SKUs. Yes. You know, you might add to the collection of makeup, but skincare is a different proposition in terms of retention. Yes. And looking at retention of customer and retention of products. So it's an interesting when you swivel because a lot of people who start as a makeup in one area and going to another, it's about how far can you stretch? You know, how many verticals do we bring out as we grow? So mm. for us, growth has been around bringing out a second vertical when we know we want to do more after that and proving that vertical. So we proved in 18 months that revenue growth. Yes. Then it's about location. So last year we had just started to localize yeah. and we did distribution in Australia yeah. instead of shipping from the UK. So actually implementing all those warehouses, all of that, that's a big deal. And you've got to be of a certain size to be able to handle localization to warehouses, double backend system, integrated ERP system. That's all mm -hmm. been a fucking nightmare, but you yeah. know, it, it, they always is. And just warehouse integration for anyone who has stock, it's a challenge. But doing that then enabled us to grow more in Australia. We used to be about 15% or 12% in Australia, and it took us to about 20% Australia because suddenly there was that low-hanging fruit of the customer who'd the person who followed us for a long time, but shipping of $13, $26 was a lot. And now yeah. she could buy two products, discover the brand, and then buy into the brand. And the same time, retail. So the play of retail and e-com, which I think we'll get onto, is really interesting. And I think 
a mm. lot of businesses now who are in, who have been totally D2C and they're looking at what they need to do in retail. They've got maybe investors who are saying to them, hey, you've got to go straight to wholesale, you know, mm. or there's some people who are finding it challenging to raise money. It's a very interesting area. Where is e-com going? Mm, so yeah. for us to date, we've expanded our geographicals, we've expanded our channels. Yes. And we've expanded our range. Yes. And I think that really is how you grow. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned retail versus D2C. It's really interesting. One thing I've noticed, I've shared this before, all of my f successful e-com friends, the ones that were purely D2C when, you know, challenges happened with paid advertising past yep. couple of years versus mm. the ones that had a good mixture of D2C and retail, mm -hmm. they were not hit nowhere near as hard. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm seeing more than ever now businesses are moving into DTS, uh, moving into, into retail. retail. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. I, th I think I think it's a mixture of. Mm. I think it's a kind of not a perfect storm. It's the opposite of that, right? But we had the iOS release. We had Facebook changing everything. Yeah. So that has affected people. You know, our LTV over CAC is still healthy. We have a decent ROAS of like two hundred percent. But you know, it's about what's the maximum you can push on Ooh. Meta each day. And, you know, we look at, you know, I'm sure lots of people who are in the business, it's like, shall we do everything the Facebook way or shall we do it our way? And I speak to lots of other companies, like there's some interesting people out of Israel, there's some great tech in Israel of mm. um, really having that layer on of their own data scientists, yeah. layering on top of Facebook. And we are now, we implemented Snowplow last year, which gives you first party data. So yeah. it enables us to really look at what is that customer? Where are they coming from? What ads are they coming from? What's resonating? Because it's one thing Facebook telling you what's working and they definitely take, oh, you know, yeah, they attribution, so, yeah, attribution yeah, is yeah, such yeah. a fucker. They yeah. just, you know, yeah, they yeah. really like to own it all, you know, otherwise it would be my 120% would be meta. Um, so it's looking at that, but I think the funnel has changed and, you know, speaking to people at Facebook and um, I've got a few decent people there. It's all about how you change the proportion of spend in the funnel, because it used to be you'd be doing 100% on, on click. And now it's actually brand awareness. Mm. And I'm talking about DC brands. I'm not talking about legacy brands like Coca-Cola and stuff who are mm. doing the brand awareness anyway. Mm. But for us, it's about taking some ad sets and thinking, all right, what if we do 30% brand awareness and 70% click? Yeah, yeah. Direct response. Yeah. So... I'm curious. So when you launched, uh, how much did you raise? Can you share how much you raised? Yeah, we raised, well, I initially I did in England, you can do an SEIS scheme, which is an enterprise initiative scheme, but you can do a junior one. So I raised 150,000 and that lasted me about a year. And then I ran out and I sold clothes. I ended up, I sold my house because I couldn't afford the mortgage. So, mm -hmm. you know, you got to bootstrap and we talked before about yeah. Gary Vinacek and like, yeah. what can you sell? So I had that journey of, of, what would I have to let go of in order to start the business? And I did that. And then we raised 2.5, the first raise, when we we're about a year before we launched. And then a year after we launched, we raised 3.1. So we've raised 7.6 in total. Yes. And I think to get to our revenue on that amongst our competitors, it's comparatively some, so maybe Glossier and Tilbury at this stage, which is yes. any other maybe would have raised 20 million. So yeah. it's good and it's bad. It's good in so much that, you know, we have a positive EBITDA, mm. but the momentum of having a lot of cash behind you is 
not available to us, but it makes you also careful with money. Mm. And so, you know, we look at Tilbury, which has been phenomenally successful, but really probably launched more as a retail brand and COVID, they pivoted and they became more D2C and 50, maybe they're 50-50, I don't know. Glossier, on the other hand, they had to go to retail post-COVID because they had such an issue with, you know, I mean, there mm. are times in any brand's life when you're going to use a lot of people to build and then you're going to get off some of the fat, you're going to get lean and you're going to do that. And it's going to happen in every single company. Mm. So I think what I love about this story is a lot of people would look at you and go, oh, well, you're a celebrity. You're, you know, you're on TV. It's easy to, to, to build a brand, right? Well, I wasn't on TV when I built this brand. I think raising money, did it get me a meeting? You know, I, I emailed 250 people and I got 49 meetings. So one in five and of that one person invested. Mm. And then consequently other people did, but you know, that initial thing. So mm. maybe it gets you in the door, but equally people have preconceptions, which aren't always good because they mm. might think, oh, you work in TV. What do you know about running a business? Or they mm. might think, you know, I mean, I had a lot of interesting comments when I was sitting in front of investors around, mm. are you too old to start a business? You know, do you have a big enough social media following? Um, you know, who's actually going to run the business? Um, you know, do you know how to read a balance sheet? Uh, lots of that kind of stuff. Mm. So you will perhaps, you know, I think from fundraising, I would say oddly, it's not an advantage, although, because I think everyone has, has to have the hustle, you know, and if you have the right hustle, you can get a bloody meeting. Mm. It's being tenacious. It's getting to know the EA of somebody you want to get to. It's showering them with loveliness. You know, I had a, a husband who was so utterly brilliant at that. Mm. And he would always just get to know the assistant of somebody he wanted to get to. And just, he was utterly charming to them. And he always got a meeting mm. because they wanted to put him in for a meeting, you know, because he was tenacious. And so instead of sending the email always to, the person you want to get to find out their EA. And maybe, you know, if you've got two or three refusals or nothing, no acknowledgement, go via the EA and charm her or him. Mm. Let's not be discriminatory here. Sorry. Yeah, it's all right. No, you've got to find the gatekeeper. That's, you've got to find the gatekeeper. Yeah, that's, that's how I started yeah. with Founder. And first four months I got an interview with Richard Branson, finding the gatekeeper, off you go, right? Yeah, exactly. So, okay. So, yeah, I love this part of your story that, you know, because most people would go, oh, well, you, you had a massive social following, you had a ton of money, and then you've just kind of attached this brand. And this is a real business that you've built. You've I had 62,000 yeah. followers. It wasn't a massive social following, I have to say, even though mm. this is like 2013 or 14. Yeah, yeah. But I didn't particularly. And when I did the first, you know, P&L and looking at the projections of the business, I literally had to do it all as a conversion of a percentage of people who followed me on social would buy. Mm -hmm. So I said 3%. Because yep. I thought three percent conversion online feels right, so yes. I just said that. And then I thought, what? How much will they grow per year? Yeah, you know. And so we did the projections on that. And when I did a, I had one of our investors who came in the second round. Yeah. And she then left that investment house, and she sent me a frame thing when she left, and it showed our five-year projection. Mm. And, you know, showed that nice little hockey stick we all want to see. Um, but she just put in it, you are the only company that came to me with a five-year projection. And exactly the figure you said is what you did. Yeah, wow. Which is kind of like, you know. That's impressive. It, well, I think it was luck. 
<laughs> I, yeah, I was going to say, I'm going to say it's luck because you know in. we can yeah. think of a year, maybe two. But yeah. tell me, anyone listening, any entrepreneur listening, yeah. really? No, it was luck. Yeah, but it was nice luck. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, you've done an exceptional job. Then, if you've gone from sixty-two thousand followers, because th these numbers are vanity metrics, really building a strong community mm -hmm. and connecting with yeah. that community, and and the, and the depth of that community. Because our, you know, we have followers. So so you know, across all channels, we might have four million followers. Sorry, mm. but we have a community which is about one hundred fifty thousand people, mm. and not all of that community are customers. But the Trini tribe, where we have, you know, in Victoria, we have six and a half thousand. In New South Wales, we have nearly 7,000. Mm. Um, so they're just vested and they feel a part of something and they feel a connection to other women. And maybe they're also being allowed to be the person they want to be in this environment. And they're people who are not naturally people who would be on social all the time, you know, you kind mm. of think my daughter's on TikTok the whole time, you mm. know, but when you get to like 40s and 50s, people, everyone is on, you know, we have, you know, I'm also doing a book here, you know, in the queue, there were two 75 year olds who were like, so then learn and then I do this. And I, I love what you said on stories yesterday. And, you know, it's like, you think this is fantastic. I love that. Mm. So tell me, how did you came, come up with the idea of the Trini tribe? Where What's did you learn? Okay. Wasn't us. And I think the success of the Trini tribe is that we didn't start it. Okay. It was started by a woman in Northwest England called Kelly. Mm. And she followed me. And I think we hadn't even launched. I don't know if we'd launched Trini London yet. Paris, is she here? No, she's not. We hadn't launched Trini London, I don't think. I don't think we had. So I was speaking to Claire and Dida. Mm. But I don't think we had. But she just followed what I did. And but it was very close to it was like three months before. Yeah. And then after about after going for about six months, we noticed all these sort of Facebook groups that had taken a tiny bit of our logo or a picture of me. And they just were dotting up all over the shop. And we, so we reached out to them and we said, look, you know, do you want to kind of come together as a as a group? Because you're mm. all doing the same thing. And and some people don't know which tribe to join. And and they're all yeah. like, so we said, should we, should we regionalize you? You know, mm. because it would be natural to geo geographic. Mm. And so we did that. We have a community team now who we get about 13,000 comments a week through different social channels. Mm. But for us, it's always been really important to allow that community to feel we're always there at the end of, of a piece of social. Mm. And so there's now 34 tribes in 17 countries. And some of them are tiny, some are 500 people, like mm. Dubai probably has 500 people. And then Victoria, Australia has six and a half thousand. So mm. they are, you know, engaged. We have each of them who are admins of the pages. Yes. We said, do you want to call yourself ambassadresses? Yeah. And then after like another year, we said, look, few days before something launches, we'll send it to you so that you can, because they're kind of, you know, the, their local tribe looks at them and say, what do you think of this? So we then give them the chance to try it. Yeah. But we never, I think we give the ambassadors maybe a little discount, but it's actually more an emotional mm. give and take. Mm. And I think that's why, I think when these things are monetized too much or they're started by the business, there's a certain commercialization which doesn't allow for better organic growth. And I think something like this, you want to let that organic growth flourish. Also, they're your biggest champions mm. and they're your harshest critic. Mm. So 
if we do something and they're like, Dillum, we kind of, they're a real sense check for stuff. And you need as a business, you don't want to get, you know, you don't want to get over here when you, you, you need to hear what's going on. Mm. And they are really good at that. Mm. So in saying that, is it, is it just Facebook groups that you guys are using? Or? They're Facebook groups. Yes. There's a few, I mean, there's lots who use Instagram, but what's good about Facebook is it's a two-way communication tool. Mm. Instagram isn't. Instagram is a platform and you leave your comments. Yeah. It's a two-way tool on, on DMs, but it's mm. not a two-way tool in community. Mm. And Meta is still, you know, Facebook is a community. It's the only platform on social media, which is a true ability to have a community. Mm. And I don't think that would change as much as people might dismet or whatever. Mm. There is a very strong community there. Yeah. So what advice would you give to early stage founders that want to develop like a, an incredibly strong community like you guys have? It's interesting. I think, does it depend on the age of the customer you're getting to? Does it depend on the attitude of the kind of customer you're going to acquire? Because you can look at customers attitudinally and they could be any age, or mm. you could look at them like it's a millennial, it's a Gen Z, whatever it might be. And then it's about where are they chatting? Where are they chatting with each other? Mm. And, and how do you just get involved in that chat? How do you, in a way, do something which makes them talk about you? And it's about so understanding what maybe is lacking in their life and being able to be that voice that talks about it. And I think in anything, whether it's Gen Z or millennial or baby boomer, if you're talking about something that people are thinking about, they look to hear more. Mm. And in the early days, how often were you in the, in the groups? In the groups a lot. I mean, last night I was, you know, we did some events. We, we arrived here two weeks ago and we did Sydney and, you yeah. know, we did a lot of press in Sydney and we had a tribe event. And then we went to Brisbane. So then I look and I see what they're all posting and I like comments and, you know, always late at night, I'll just go through and I'll like comments. Mm. Um, and Instagram, I do it all myself on my channel, but on Trini London, yeah. we do it. But I just feel it's really important to, you know, I might get, I don't know, two to 400 comments a day, but mm. you get a sense of things. It's, I remember this guy who started a com competitor to British Gas in England. And I sat next to him at dinner. He was a very cool founder. And in fact, I think, did Rich Benson also invest a bit in him? I can't remember. But, you know, he's a cool man. And he said um, his office was in customer service. That's where he actually put it. Because he wanted to hear yeah. what people are thinking and talking about. And when people don't get the response they want, they DM me. You know, so I hear what could be a problem, what is a problem, you know what they love. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying this episode and learning a ton. As you know, in this series, we interview some of the greatest founders of our generation to find out how they did it. However, if you're thinking of starting your own business and you want to hear from some incredible stories from everyday people like you or I, who are actually in the trenches, only been building their business for maybe one year or two years, like that are building right now and they're really in the early stages, but they're getting success. You should come and check out our new podcast from Zero to Founder, hosted by our community manager, Molly Flynn. These are in the trenches stories from our very own successful students that have gone through some of our programs. People just like you who are deep within the process of building their very own successful business. 
These are the founders of tomorrow. You can find the From Zero to Founder podcast on all platforms. And remember, it's founder without the E. All right, now let's jump in the show. Early stage startup founders, if they want to start a beauty brand, mm-hmm. very, very, very competitive now. Yeah. More than ever, yeah. you look at AI, it's so easy to create a business now. You yeah. look at Shopify and the tools available. Mm-hmm. Much, much easier. So much easier. Like I came out of Shopify insane. before they launched Shopify Plus. Yeah. We went into commerce tools and I'm like, <gasps> yeah, yeah, just yeah. challenging. So you have to have yeah. multiple, back then you couldn't even have multiple stores. You had to yeah. have multiple separate stores. Yeah. No Shopify. And now okay. that's all changed. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so a lot has changed. So technically right? much easier. Correct. Getting the customer more challenging. Yeah. So. How, what advice would you give to early stage startup founders that want to start a beauty brand? How do they stand out? I'm going to say one thing first is I think some of the reasons people fail and don't get it off the ground is they spend too long on the product development of what it is and too little on how are they going to sell it, mm. you know? And Barbara, who we both love, um, Shark Tank. Mm. We so love Barbara. You interviewed her, didn't you? She's so mm. fab. Yeah. She was like, do you remember the thing? 87% is good enough. So challenging for an entrepreneur where 100% has got to be the norm. But I never mm. forget her saying that. She said that to one of the pitchers. Mm. And I was like, that's so true. And I was lying in bed next to my partner. And I was just thinking, when I was being trying to be too perfectionist, and I just thought, it's got to be. I mean, at the very beginning, you want to be 100%, 100%. But so that's the first thing I'd say is yep. whatever you're, you know, you've got to feel, you got to ship. yeah, you've got to feel it might be a great product and you might feel you have got a point of difference in the market, but go out and see where are people buying whatever it is you're selling and how are they selling it? So yeah. is your physical product different? Have you invented some incredible new raw ingredient or is the packaging and branding phenomenal? Because in the world we live in today, packaging and branding can definitely get a product off the ground, but they will not ever make it a legacy brand. And it's like, you don't want to build to have something in five years just die. You know, I think we all want to build to have something which is there and becomes establishment. It's always maybe a bit rock and roll, but it, you know, you don't want to do those turns. So it has to have substance. So for me as a beauty brand entrepreneur, you know, we went to, for skincare, we have our own lab. So for me, being in control of what my product is and developing it so that it feels incredibly unique, so that we can talk about it with authenticity to show its point of difference in the market. And it gives you the passion in which to talk about your products. So I think that's really important in terms of that, making it. And cutting through the noise is about understanding what's out there now, or if you're filling the hole, mm-hmm. then where uh, where is it going to resonate the most with those people mm. you know and how like there's a very I, I mentor a few people in the uk and there's a girl who has a um jewelry brand she started when she was 18 she's now 21 yeah maybe she's 22 yeah. and she did this thing where she started off on a minute level with girls who went to schools where there was like a sixth former who was influential and she sent them product. So she didn't go to influencers. She went on a real, I mean, we talk about micro-influencers, we yeah. talking about them for 10 years, yeah. right? But I found this whole strategy where she was getting literally into a school of 500 kids. She knew that that 
13 to 16 year old looked up at the 17 and 18 year old mm. and that she would get them to do stuff. Mm. And she created these micro influencers in incredibly targeted. That is, those are the places. So she has started with like 25 schools yeah. and she's building up a really good business and she's turning over a couple of million, you know, I'm not going to say the details, but yeah. you know, that's how focused she became is like, I'm making this jewelry, who's going to love it and who's going to want it even more, mm. you know, because who's going to love it is the people who would tell the people who's going to want it even more mm. by how they tell them and talk to them and communicate in their language. Mm, yeah, it's much easier to compete if you if you get your target market so yeah. dialed, like that niche so yeah. dialed in. And really like putting them on the wall, you know, get your, whoever your target is. I like to take things sometimes out of online mm. and put on the wall, who is that person? You know, it, this is really old fashioned marketing, but like, where do, what do they look at on social? You know, where are they buying from right now? Who are they hanging out with? Who are their influences? All these things are just know that customer. Mm. Do you think you need to raise money to start? I don't know. It's really tough because raising money, you can get your throat slit right now. It's a ruthless market oh, and yeah. fundraising is really challenging. And there's a lot of people sitting on money right now, not investing because they're thinking that sounds like something I invested in a few years ago. So it is challenging to raise money. And I would say bootstrapping, if you can, for proof of concept, will mean that when you go to that fundraise, you will not be shredded in terms of the cap table, because otherwise you will. If you raise too early and people are saying, I'm taking a big punt on you, Mm -hmm. They're going to be really greedy in the cap table. And then you're going to find you're a couple of years in and you might even already be close to being minority. And you need at least if you're a, I feel if you're a founder, you have a sense of what your product is and your market is, if it's, you know, a D2C brand. And you need to protect your sense of it because you come up with the idea and there might be people along the way. There's definitely going to be people along the way as you grow who will know more than you in different areas. But if you get people in too early, they might direct you to a way that is where they feel the market's going. And maybe you have a real intuition where you feel you have the vision to see something else. And it's very difficult sometimes to define what do we trust in our vision versus where are they telling me something I need to hear? Mm. And that's, you know, going out to see investors, even if you're not fundraising, I mean, it takes a lot of time out of growing your business, but it's interesting to understand the market. It's interesting to see what's launching. It does give you information, but it takes a lot of time out. And if there's other ways that you can do it just for the first sort of six months or a year, I think people are looking, you know, people, when I raise, people did pre-revenue, mm. but doing pre-revenue now is very challenging in this market. Mm. So do you believe it's possible to build a successful beauty brand, not raising any money, starting really small? You said you started with like 40 SKUs, maybe just starting with one SKU, like a very simple, like. For sure. You have got brands. Um, who have, I'm just like trying to think, oh, like there's a brand called Gizu, which is like a hair brand. Mm. Um, and she was an influencer and she started, but I don't know if investors went to her and then they, they financed it. You have some people who might literally start with one product. It's, it is challenging. 
And it depends how much time you feel you have to have the patience to grow it. Mm. Years ago, I went to see, not years ago, two years ago, I went to see um, Leonard Lauder, who's um, uh, mother's Estee Lauder, big oh. purchaser of beauty brands. Mm. But in our conversation, he said to me, Trini, biggest thing I can tell you, patience. Mm. Which is interesting because sometimes, you know, we think, and I'm going to say this, like, but I think to myself, we're the young ones, we know what we're doing. I'm saying it's like I'm nearly 60 and he's like 80. But yeah. it's important sometimes to look at those people who have founded billion dollar businesses, mm. very different times, but fundamentally you're selling a product to a consumer. So even if the method by which you're selling it has changed for the era you live in, some of those fundamentals are actually identical and they never changed. And so when he said that to me, I always noticed that when I strategically made, make impulsive rather than intuitive decisions is when I don't have my patience. Mm -hmm. It's just an interesting one. So going back to your question, Nathan, of should you fundraise or should you be, you know, it's requires patience. It's very challenging financially because you've then got to be in a position where you think, you know, do I rent? Or do I live with my parents? I mean, if, if we're talking to people who are in that situation, then, yeah. you know, can I do it out of my parents' garage for a bit? Can I make that my office? Um, how can I fund my product? Because when you're funding product, if you're going to self-fund, the cost per skew is going to be more expensive than if you can order more and grow the business. So there is that point before you get to that inflection point where you're actually going to have a better gross margin, where it's more expensive for you to do it. But it means that you can get to a stage where you could have, you know, a positive impact where you're not having to wait for your next revenue to buy your next stock. And then when you go to an investor, you'll be in a far stronger position. Mm. But it's, I think there is no one right yeah. or wrong way. It's really how you are emotionally as a person and what motivates you as to which route and also the markets. Mm, and how big you want to go? Well, all right. So if you're listening, I don't know if there's anyone listening who would say, I just want to grow a really small business. Have you ever had somebody sitting opposite you, Nathan, who said, I actually just want to grow a small business? Never. Okay, fine. So Never. the world is your oyster. You know, I sat down with a woman who founded Natapporta, Natalie Masney, mm. and she said to me, she gave me some lovely bits of advice. So she said, Trini, from day one, you're a global brand. Never forget it. Mm. Yeah, you, you make an interesting point around kind of how big do you want to go and this kind of, is it ever enough? Well, are they two separate things? Because is it ever enough is a state of mind. And I, I don't know many entrepreneurs who go, it's enough. No, never. Okay, never. so I think that's like, that's the, that's the, burden you carry as an entrepreneur it's mm. kind of never enough and that's what propels you forward all the time and it's just there are people who like that and there are people who like they get to stage where this is enough and i look at people sometimes like that and i think it would be lovely to have your life because it would be a life of far less worry you wouldn't be so yeah. kind of challenged every single day you wouldn't be yeah. kind of pounding the streets you know like i was coming to you today and i had my team with me staying at this hotel and i was like i had so many things on my mind i had to walk fast and get away from everyone you know so i was literally mm crossing the streets and they were all like behind me going, she's just, where the fuck has she gone? Mm. But it was just because there are a lot of thoughts inside my head right now. And 
you know, the challenge for me is I'm running a business. There's mm. over 200 people in it and I'm here promoting the business as well. Mm. And that's my most challenged time is, is wearing those two hats yeah. and feeling far away from a lot of decisions I'm making right now around the business when I also need to be here focused 100% on this. Yeah. That's my biggest challenge. Yeah, because, yeah, the personal brand, you're doing it so well and it's really driving the growth or partly, partly yeah. driving the growth, but then operationally you're the CEO. But I have a great COO. I've just yeah. hired a really good CFO, CRO. I yeah. combine that role. and oh, I you found combined? That I combine really? that role because it's like cash in, cash out. You Jeez, know, that's interesting. That's an interesting Isn't profile. That, yeah. I'd like to meet that person. Yeah, I know because generally, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I interviewed lots of CFOs and, uh -huh. and I met this one and I thought, actually, this is interesting. Okay. Yeah. There you so, go. Yeah. So you've got a strong leadership team. Strong leadership team. Good C-suite team. Mm -hmm. Great leaders in each department. Yeah. I think building up a team and looking at where the focus is each year. So right now what I'm doing is I'm looking at where is our focus now? You know, so do we have... Who are the people in the business we need for where we want to go now? Mm. You know, so I am looking now at, we need to look more at what would wholesale look like if we get to wholesale? What does retail look like when we're doing, you know, those are roles now that probably three years ago, two years ago, COO can do that role, you know, and just lead that because it's such a small proportion of our business. It's 10% of our business. But as we grow into retail, we need to look at what that is. And I think, the challenge for DC brands now is whatever market that you're targeting, people need to, in order to trust you as a brand and believe what you are, they need to see the physical manifestation of the D2C brand. And if they mm. don't see it, it's kind of like it's here today, gone tomorrow. Mm. And there are a lot of DC brands that are here today, yeah. gone tomorrow. So having the pop, you know, like the way we've done in Australia is we have these these kiosks and that we call them pop-ups, but they're actually permanent stands. Mm. And we try and do them in front of a Sephora or we're opening an Emporium yep. here in um, Melbourne, our second yeah. one in, in November. Yeah. And we need people to see that so that, you know, even though when we localized here and we just, you know, it was fantastic for online as soon as we localized, yeah. they would then see, you know, I've got, you know, I was looking today at the area mm. and, I went into Emporium before I came here. So people sent me yeah, videos. Nice spot. Yeah. And I was like, where are we going to be? It's really mm. interesting about this is this is the interesting thing about when you do your physical location where you're going to be. So yeah. mostly you'd sort of say, got to be where all the premium brands are. We've got to be where Aesop is, we've got to be where Camilla Mark is, Zimmerman, yeah. all that. And I looked at that spot today and I thought, great, you know, but outside yeah. of those areas, pop-ups aren't necessarily allowed. Then you look at traffic and you look at route in which they're going to get to the stores in which they might do other parts of their life, that kind of customer. And they have to come off Lonsdale Street and they go up and they hit Nike and then they go right and then they take the escalator to go to Zimmerman and Camilla Mark and they'll pass us. Mm -hmm. So we want to plonk ourselves right in front of them and Mecca's just there. Mm. So it's about, you know, whatever your brand might be, if you're going to do a pop-up, what does that look like? How are you going to make that noise, which then you put on your social channels, which people then see and think, look how physical they are, because everyone ultimately, and there are some stats which show that Gen Z shot more in store than millennials. 
because oh, they, really? you know, they spent a lot of time during COVID stuck and they want to be in stores. They mm. want to be out. They want to be sociable. So the concept that you're going to buy everything online, yes, but they want to go in store. Mm. So what are you doing about it if you're starting a business for a Gen Z? How are you going to be in that location where you're going to attract those people? Mm. TikTok. TikTok's TikTok. the rage. TikTok is the rage. Yeah. TikTok, it's interesting. Um, yeah, talk to us about your experiences there. Okay. So I feel we have a long way to go with TikTok. Mm, I feel that there's certain, you know, if we look at our target demographic, I think they're on TikTok with their daughters. I think that when I, you know, my daughter will always show me stuff on TikTok and then I'll look at TikTok and it kind of takes you down the rabbit hole. Um, I think the algorithm is so fundamentally different. So when you're doing organic growth on TikTok, it's, you've got to kind of reset everything if you've been Instagram or Facebook. And for us as a brand, it's also how do we spread ourselves to do all those channels? Because we have a lot of, you know, we are really deep into meta in both Facebook and Instagram. So yeah. do we spread ourselves too thin? Do we have enough people to create that? Otherwise, then I could do more on my TikTok and just, you know, grow that sort of quirkiness mm. on TikTok. So when we were posting, and at the moment we just post and re repurposing isn't working. Repurposing is not the way to do TikTok. It's got to be oh, yeah, so- yeah, it's got, yeah, yeah, you can't do so what you put on Instagram. So there's been a bit Instagram. of repurposing, yeah, yeah. right? And I just think that's not working. Yeah. So the one successful viral <laughs> that I had on TikTok, which is like, when I get back, this is my kind of thing of how am I going to influence that we grow TikTok because I do believe there's, there's people there and I do believe there's an audience there and I do see a lot of different age groups now on TikTok. Mm. Um, I had a, there was this viral thing about Zara with its sizing and yeah. I kept seeing it on TikTok and whenever my daughter, I said, it's such crap. You know, they were saying, it's a triangle for this, it's a circle means you're, it comes up small and it's a square means it comes up big or something. And I said, that's such crap. So I just went into Zara and I sort of went, just so you know, whatever this viral thing's going around is crap because the truth is this means Zara Home, this means Zara Woman, and this means um, TRF. Yeah. It's just the different brands within Zara. It's nothing to do with sizing. Um, and I got like two and a half million <laughs> views on it because Lila said, I said, Lila, she's 19, my daughter, tell me how I put it up so it will immediately, she said, okay, the first 10 seconds, we're not going to use your voice but it's going to turn into your voice and we're going to do this typeface and da, 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 two and a half million hits or whatever it was. So I sort of feel on one hand, should I just get my daughter to be in charge of TikTok um, and she can do a side hustle? She needs a side hustle anyway. I'm feeling she's becoming a bit entitled at university. Mm. And I was speaking to the team and they were saying we did you know, jobs at the weekend at uni and, yeah. and Lila's like, but I'm in Spain, I couldn't speak the language to do the job. And I'm like, okay, well, let's think mm. of another one. But it's definitely there. We definitely need to work on it. Mm. Um, it's not a primary conversion for us, but it's a market that you need to be in. Because also as a brand, when you have an audience that's not a Gen Z audience, well, actually any, any brand that has a target audience, how do you get those people who are going to become that age? So you as a brand are here. And you launch with those people where it resonates. But how do you make sure those people who are currently 30, that when they become 35, 40, yeah. we will be the brand that resonates yeah, with them? Because otherwise you grow old with your customer and then you fall off a cliff. Mm. And some beauty brands are a little bit too 
legacy slash dinosauric. Mm. And, you know, some of the big conglomerates have got that kind of, you feel it's a brand for your grandma, nearly. Mm. So we are a brand definitely for a grown up woman, but how do we always be the brand for that woman when she reaches that stage in her life that we are relevant to her, which means that although the DNA and fundamentals are there, life changes, you know, we're in different decades. There's new technologies, there's new things happening, which leads us to AI. Mm. Okay, and VR. I just, I'm just giving you the. Yeah, okay. I'm giving you the right, let's, let's do okay. it. Yep. All right. So, when I was looking at the algorithm we built, Match to Me, yeah, it was based upon how do you make it easier for an audience who's not used to buying makeup for the first time online, maybe replenishing, yes, to actually have the confidence to buy online. Yeah. So it was about build. You know, we did three thousand six hundred women that we analyzed to look at what their skin, hair, and eye combinations would be. And then we match makeup to them. So we built that mm. and 75% of our customers use that as a tool. And the AOV on those people is about 20% more than the, a the AOV on somebody who doesn't do match to me. Yeah. So it works. We know personalization works. So yes. I'm going to kind of strip out personalization, sort of VR, yeah. AI. All right. Yeah. And so we, so we have that. That's our kind of personalization. Yes. Then during COVID, a lot of brands who are retail focused knew that they had to do things to get customers online. So they did virtual trial. Mm. All right, so virtual trial, and we had a perfect core out of Korea, quite a few of these brands, it was bought by L'Oreal. And so L'Oreal did it themselves. Yes. And they developed medium technology that you could try it on. Some yes. worked well, some didn't know how to use the technology because you know, coming out of COVID, I look on their websites and I think they've really hidden it because to them, they're not D to C first. So mm. it's like it was relevant when all the stores were closed. Yes. But now the stores are open. It's not so relevant. Mm. For us, it's always been relevant because also then I know so much about our customer. The more personalized we are, the more I understand about our customer and therefore I can deliver more relevant product, products to her. So when we launch our skincare, so we mm. have three bits of information on our customer. Yeah. So we launched skincare and that now goes to 30 bits of information on our customer. So we know now the age, we know skin, hair, and eye, we know sensitivity, we know dark spots, we know that emotional things. You know, when you're doing all of these new technologies, the hardest, most challenging thing is how do you get information out of them, which gives you emotional intelligence? Because going back to what we said at the very beginning, emotional intelligence is what sells brand. Mm. So we look at where we go next. Mm. And there's definitely, you can look at our journey of when people do the personalization yes. and where there's a drop-off. Yes. So we've changed a few things to kind of lower the drop-off in some areas. Yep. But virtual try-on, interesting, but to me it's like gamification because I'm not a brand which believes in filters. Yes. And a lot of virtual try-on literally puts a filter on your face first and then puts on the makeup. And I'm like, this is so against everything we stand for. It's like, be the best version of yourself, but don't put a filter onto face life. Mm. Um, so don't think so. But then there's analysis. So for us, subjective opinion on who you think you are versus who you really are is very important to us. And a lot of people might say, it's like when they go to the hairdresser and they say, my hair's too red. And the hairdresser looks at it and thinks it's a bit green. All right, it's subjective. So when they answer their skincare, our skincare questionnaire, they're still saying subjectively what they feel. So the next bit that I will fold into my side is being able to identify skin in great detail because skin identification 
was very rusty. Like it couldn't identify because it wasn't good enough yet. And it changes every three months. The difference between a spot and an age spot. So cystic acne or an age spot, couldn't tell the difference. But now it can, literally in the last four months, five wow. months. So we are now at a stage of phase three of what a personalization journey means, which is we can take over for you where you're not sure of what answer to give, which might delay you completing it. Oh. We will actually help you. So we're going to implement a few things. Yeah. Um, so that's our kind of next stage. Yes. And then there's a further stage, which I can't talk about yet, but it is, you want things that are relevant for your audience to understand that they know will help them to get to a solution. But just to do it for a game or just to do it to keep up with the crowd isn't the reason to do it. Yeah, no, look, um, we have to work towards wrapping up. We're almost at time. But uh, that's really interesting how you guys are using that personalization. That's like almost a form of, like it's, it's kind of a competitive advantage, right, that to be able to do that against yeah. other brands. It's really yeah. smart. So last question, Trini, yeah. before we wrap. Um, any final words of wisdom that you would love to share with our community of early stage startup founders, particularly e-commerce founders just about to launch something, recently launched something, or they're just post-revenue? I think there's days when you're going to just think, will it ever work? So I'm just going to address those kind of days because I think that's the most challenging thing because you can feel quite alone as a founder. You can feel, you know, if you're not doing it with a partner, it can be a solitary existence at the beginning. Mm. And if you know you're giving it your all, then it's to remember you never know what's behind the closed door. Because you, we can kind of, you know, take the narrative and make it really that there is no solution to what you, you might be looking for. And it's just to be open to there could be something, you know. Mm. So for me, I need to remember that. Mm. I have to ask one more. Have you, ever, have you ever thought of or felt like giving up during this journey? I'm wondering when I was raising money if, you know, when I had the kind of hundreds email of no interest, whether I thought, but I don't think I ever did. Mm. Here you go. Yeah. Awesome. Well, look, thank you so much for your time. It's great to see you again. This was a fantastic interview. And yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see how far you take this thing. Great. Nice to see you again, Nick. Yeah, you too. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.